0: Welcome Elizabeth. Elizabeth Wong. So lovely to see your smiling face from halfway around the world and I'm not going to say where you are in your sunny space from our sunny space. I'm going to welcome you and allow you to introduce yourself in whatever way you want to and tell us where you're calling in from today Elizabeth. (laughs)
1: I'm calling in from Los Angeles. That's the easiest part of that question. (laughs) Mm. And it's so funny because I was thinking about prepping for this and, and, um, and I've listened to some of the other podcasts and I knew that you asked about introducing oneself and I didn't think about it at all.
0: (laughs) Good. So let's see what comes out.
1: Let's see what comes up. So I'm Elizabeth Ing-Wong and actually my middle name has now become more a part of my creative space too. So uh, I'm Elizabeth Mei-Ling Ing-Wong. Um, the Mei-Ling is, is my middle name. It was actually my the first name that I was called because uh, it was the name that had already been decided on before I was born. And there was still some conversation around whether I would be an Elizabeth, a Victoria, or an Alexandra. Um, so my first name was actually Mei Ling, uh, and um, it's it's a name that I have reclaimed for myself uh, in the last couple of years, uh, partly because of my writing and 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 creative work. Uh, and realizing it was a significant part of my identity as a child. And p- because my my English grandmother actually, I <laughs> uh, called me Mei Ling, whereas the rest of my family called me Elizabeth and uh, she died when I was 14. So that reinforcement went away. Uh, and over the last few years, I've realized Mei Ling was, was a part of my origin story actually as you know oh. as we talked about so um yeah so I'm Elizabeth Mei Ling in Wong I have a lot of hyphens in my name and uh oh, wow. well, Elizabeth,
0: I, I'm just going to pause you because you've answered it it's so brilliant you just we, we ask one question and sometimes it's like okay we let's just stop and unpack that <laughs> you know <what>? <laughs>
1: thing even me. before we know <laughs> what you do in the world oh right what I do in the world <laughs> You don't you just want to know my names. Uh, I'm a filmmaker and I have also produced and I guess now co-written some theater as well with you guys sometimes. Um, and uh, and within the realm of filmmaking, I've played multiple roles at this point. I, both on and offset set uh, from producing, I... To, I mean, all of them at this point, producing and writing and directing and editing. And I, you know, it's I feel very fortunate to have been able to jump between different roles in totally different genres. I uh, from television to film to gaming now. I and something that I think about a lot is how to integrate all of the experiences into one central continued uh evolution of my of my own voice Mm. is that did that answer the question
2: (laughs) yeah that answers the question and (laughs) and the the two answers are are entirely complementary because bringing Ling back to the fore is about integrating all of that too you know you've formerly been known a lot as Elizabeth. I've only ever known you as Elizabeth in all the time I've I've known you. And so yeah. now there's there's May Ling. So there's integration happening in, you know, everywhere in your life, which is just wonderful to hear in that answer. Something that really struck me, I loved that you just dived straight into your name because our name has so much about who we are and how and our identity and you reference your English grandmother. And you know you have this quintessentially English name, Elizabeth. And yet, it, and yet it was your English grandmother who always called you Mei Ling. So I love, I just love that connection. And that's the unexpectedness of that actually. Because one might assume that your English grandmother would have held on to Elizabeth. But or Victoria
0: didn't. or Alexandra. Or Victoria
2: or, Alec- or Alexandra, exactly. Um, and she called you Mei Ling.
1: It, it's a pretty extraordinary detail of, I mean, you know, and one of many when I sort of survey the landscape of my childhood. <laughs> uh, because, of course, the follow-up fascinating detail of that I uh, is that is uh, that... I lived with my grandmother when I was in uh, first grade, second grade, second grade. And um, for Halloween, she dressed me up as a Chinese girl. (laughs) So if you can imagine, there are many layers. (laughs) I put on it like this little beautiful blue silk jacket i you know with the, the the sort of mao style but but beautiful silk mm. and um put on makeup and she i was a i was chinese for halloween i i mean can you imagine it's it's been a very complex i uh, sorting out um and to add to this story i mean it's so funny i we're just going there now. <laughs> Recently, <laughs> like within the last six months, I the I have many uh, half siblings. You know, there's a there's a long story to to the way my uh, family works, and my Chinese grandmother, who called me Elizabeth, I at some point my oldest half sister asked my Chinese grandmother to put all of our middle names into Chinese characters so that we knew how to write our names in Chinese. And um, and I already kind of knew how to write Mei Ling because I had studied Chinese in college and uh, Mei, the, the Mei part of Mei Ling means beautiful. And it's it's a very common, I mean, you'll see it's, it's all over. If a woman has a Chinese name in most writing, it often begins with Mei. Um, and so I'm looking at this list of Chinese of our middle names written out in Chinese that my oldest sister shared with us again in the last few months. And I'm looking at these names in the Chinese characters. And I'm like, that's not Mei Ling. <laughs> that says Mei Ying. And it's a subtle difference. And what's interesting about it to this conversation is that I uh, the ying part of that name would come from the Chinese, uh, the way you say England in Chinese. Yinghua is England in Chinese. <laughs> so wow. my Chinese grandmother had interpreted my middle name as Mei Ying <laughs> because she drew in the English side of my English grandmother. I uh, And the reason why that... Like there's a miscommunication about what it would have been, is because my Chinese grandmother, I uh, was not a part of that initial conversation when my middle name was chosen, and so mm-hmm. I, it, so I, I also have this added fascinating thing happening where in the last few years I was like I'm claiming Mei Ling, like it's going to be my you know part of my credits and the way I differentiate my authorial voice. Mm. And now I've had this curveball come in where there's an even second interpretation of what that name even is. And it's a beautiful meaning because it's, if I'm remembering correctly, it's like ying means strong or hero or, you know, like it's a very, uh, it has a lot of... um, Strength to it, and I, I wish I could remember the specific uh, translation at the moment. But I, I thought, what an interesting progression too, which to go from Mei Ling, which is more like a beautiful bell, to uh, Mei Ying, which is this like beautiful hero kind of, you know, uh, translation. And so I, I, I've just sort of been fascinated. I guess that's why I started with names because they've been on my mind. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like every time I come to something clear, (laughs) another detail is revealed to me where I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) I guess the way I thought about myself, I, you know, there was, there's some expansion to add to that conversation just by virtue of my family history, so.
0: Mm, I think that's such a a wonderful place to start and leaves me just in a space of, noticing that through our lives we continue to evolve and much as we might seek to fix who we are because that is helpful at certain points of our life actually You know that fluidity of nothing stays the same. I've had that song on my brain today, haven't I? Mm. What is that song called? Nothing stays the same. That's certainly a lyric in that song. By Carly Simon.
2: Right,
0: Right. that Carly Simon song of just the fluidity of things continually evolving and moving and changing. I think it's called "Coming Around Again." Right, right, right. (laughs) And, and and names are so much part of how we identify ourselves to ourselves as well as to other people. They become who we are and they can evolve. And you're just continuing to evolve and show new facets to you of yourself, maybe.
2: I, I'm also completely immersed in the image of the beautiful hero, you as a child in your blue Chinese girl costume, you know, and your grandmother dressing you up as a chinese girl for halloween and yet halloween is kind of about allowing i don't know maybe the hidden part of ourselves to be to be present for you to step into that that part of you that that's or the that avatar or, mm. or or however i don't know i can see there's a number of different ways of interpreting that story and my interpretation is yeah she she I don't know she was giving permission to that bit of you in that moment, allowing you to to play and I don't know it of course that may not be your interpretation of that story at all
1: well it, you know it's funny i I see it as in her own funny way, mm. it was a celebration of the chinese side of of my um biology and and my grandmother, who fascinatingly was also by that point in her life. Very overtly racist towards Black people. <laughs> I my this was in Virginia. I and she didn't start out that way. That was a progression talking about evolution of mm. of identity. Um, but she really believed in ancient cultures. So she was particularly enamored with the Chinese, with uh, Southeast Asian Indians, uh, with Native American Indians, and with Greece. And also connected to this is that the word that I used to reference my grandmother was yehya, which is, as I understand it, the Greek version of saying grandmother. Yeah, so yeah. she was yeia, and, um And then the fascinating transition there is, so my grandmother died around the same time that I was getting to know my Chinese grandparents. And of course, that's a longer story, but The fascinating thing is my Yaya died just as I was meeting and getting to know my Chinese grandfather, who in Chinese is called Yaya. So if you can imagine, there's this amazing continuation of language and sound that, that speaks to this way that our, our connection to ourselves and to our family evolves. And, and it's, you know, as I've shared with you guys, I was curious to see where we would go with this. And partly because one of the questions has been on my mind because of things that I'm working on right now and things I have to fill out talking about my work is, is, you know, are there themes inherent to my work? And I think that what I'm understanding is how important it is to me to really convey that our evolutions are continuous throughout our entire lives. Mm. Um, and I, I've, i you know, one of my first jobs was as a, a teacher, a high school social studies teacher. And I, even at that age, I was very young. It's my first job. Um, I was really noticing that we have this idea that our education and learning ends, you know, as you leave college really, or wherever your, edu- your formal education finds its conclusion. And, mm-hmm. And I and I kept thinking, even at that time, um like adult education is so important because we live so long now. Mm-hmm. And the idea that somehow we would stop learning and evolving when we're like 20 years old mm-hmm. is so ridiculous, mm-hmm. you know? And and so I'm I'm understanding more and more and more, and even as we're talking right now. I do have this inherent commitment to making sure everyone feels supported in this idea that they get to keep changing and learning and growing like all the way through their entire life. Hmm. Wow. Really important to me. Mm.
2: Yeah. That's and, lovely. and <clears throat> we understand so much more now about the plasticity of the brain, you know, than that was not really known before. It was like you develop to a certain point and then you're an adult and then that's it. That's, that's how you are which kind of you know drives me slightly crazy in the whole um, idea of using a different pronoun for people and people just just losing their shit about I can't say they or I can't refer to this person as a he or a she now well why not just 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 do it, just change. Because as you say, we are learning and changing the whole time. Mm. So we are not fixed in, in any way. And so we can, yeah, let's get over it and learn.
1: Yes, <laughs> it is, the yes. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm conscious of taking our conversation in lots of different directions right now. <laughs> so I also wanna come back to both of you and say, is there a direction you'd like us to go next? <laughs>
0: Good, good question. Well, it's wonderful following the flow of this and spending some time in this whole area of your name and your identity, because within that, we're hearing, um, if we if we haven't met you before and known who you are, we're hearing something of the complexity of a family, uh, as you've said, and the way my family has evolved and a childhood and relationship to different bits of your family. I loved it. you said, when I survey the landscape of my childhood, which I, I actually saw this kind of landscape and, and it does feel that it's only when we get to a certain, a certain distance that we get to see the perspective on our childhood. And so I have, yeah, I have got a question that I'd like to 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 allow us to go back to understand something about, and I'm going to stay with how you've identified yourself as a a filmmaker in different ways. When did you know that you wanted to head into film in the direction of film? Because uh, it's quite a choice. It's quite a choice to jump into that medium. When did you know?
1: Oh, boy. Um, A little later than I would have thought. So I was... I uh, teaching high school social, social studies, studies in Hawaii. I I had actually a fantastic job, and um, and I love teaching. I uh, but I saw that as this you know twenty two twenty three year old teacher of high school students. I was the one who was talking with them about their interest in pursuing things that weren't necessarily the obvious choices especially in a, you know, uh, this is a, a very wealthy school with lots of resources. A lot of people are expected to go become lawyers and doctors, very classic kind of thing. Um, and I had I, the chance to talk to a lot of students about sort of these alternate visions they had for their futures. And I realized I hadn't fully done that for myself. I. You know, and so at age 23, 24, as I was progressing into this new identity as a teacher, I was like, oh, I'm not quite ready to just sit here and have this be the rest of my life. I, and the background to this as well is that my mother is an artist. You know, my father ultimately became an artist in the last decade of his life. I, I was surrounded by art growing up. Um, I grew up in a studio really in my mind I mean there were houses involved and everything but my my home space with my mother was in her studio and I in writing and music and performance live performance was actually where my interest in storytelling started I and It became something, though, as as I was um, thinking, realizing as a teacher, like, oh, I need to make some adjustments. I need to move in a different direction while it's still easy to do that. I'm fascinated because what's occurring to me that I want to explore is making movies. And I, no one, no one knew this about me. Nobody.
0: (laughs) Did you know it? Did you know it's about you?
1: Well, I was discovering it and it was locked into place by a couple of very specific moments. Um, One was, I decided that I would take this you know, two-day seminar that Christine Vachon, who's now an extremely well-respected independent producer, mm-hmm. uh, was giving in Hawaii. And this was the late 90s. So I, at the time she was still establishing herself and, and I'm sure like she just came to Hawaii, you know, she got paid to come to Hawaii and have a vacation, but also talked to a bunch of people who didn't know anything about filmmaking <laughs> for a couple of days and she was talking about producing and i remember sitting there thinking i totally know what this is about like i get this 1000% mm-hmm. and i had also had this really um important experience <laughs> i in in Siberia. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> yes, where, so as a teacher, I was invited to participate in this international civics curriculum development project. And I was invited to do that because of my mentor uh, in Hawaii, a man named Mark Hannington, who was uh, was the one who was actually invited. And then because he was my mentor and because, you know, I, I was a pretty good teacher. <laughs> I, I I got to participate in this conversation between a group of Russian teachers who happened to be from this school in, in Kresnyarsk, because for whatever reason, the Russian government, the newly Russian government at that point, still mm-hmm. defining itself, that started this conversation. And the this year-long process, I concluded in a conference in Krasnoyarsk, Siberia, which is better known for its underground nuclear <laughs> arsenal and technologies. And also, which I've actually only recently learned, uh, it's aluminum trade. And so I, I ended up at this conference, I was 25 years old, and I um, I'm
0: going to ask you, in in the spirit of story, to to take yeah. us there. What did si- how did Siberia occur to you? What did you see when you suddenly oh found God. yourself it, the other side of the earth?
1: It was I. Uh, it was extraordinary, and it was uh, I. So number one, it was extraordinary because this was post Soviet Russia. Yeah, and still pretty new in its identity as such, and I they. I was so struck at the time by how I was meeting my my um my former uh, enemies, huh. you know, in the context of the Cold War, especially as an American. I mean, I don't know if you guys would have felt it in the same way, but mm-hmm. it I was so struck by how that language is so defined by some political machine unless by the direct interaction. And then the other thing that was really striking is, you know, we had to fly from Hawaii to Moscow. I We we actually flew through uh, California to get to Moscow and we ended up on an Aeroflot flight. And the second you're on Aeroflot, you're in Russia, basically. And, you know, and and like someone started a fight on the plane and then we got to Russia and they were having a horrible heat wave and our flight was delayed so that then we had to take a different flight which meant we had to go to another airport which meant we were suddenly like off the the path that had been provided for us to get there and uh the the plane that we flew to Siberia that airline was on strike until like the hour before we took off and you could see how all of these uh, people who were waiting for the flight with us, they they weren't continuously asking when we were gonna take off. You know, the the small group of Americans I was with, like we wanted to know what was going on. And the Russians who I witnessed at that time were much more uh, willing to just sort of go with the flow as to like, oh, we don't actually know when we're taking off, but at some point we will. I, so it was, it was, um, you know, I was truly in a foreign environment. Um, I had figured out enough Cyrillic to be able to at least read the signs out loud, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and, um, and then the flight to Siberia, I was like, if we, if we crash, there's no one around, (laughs) like we, we will crash in the truly in the middle of nowhere. And, um, you know, and they had like one of those. Uh, they had an open rolling bar <laughs> it went through, and the and my my seat wouldn't um, come all the way back up. And I learned that Russian airplanes at the time, at least, have been outfitted in such a way where they could instantly be turned into military vehicles, so the seats could fully recline and just flatten out and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so I. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, and I'm, and I'm sort of like summing up right now, like it was literally one of those moments where every minute that you're there, you're struck by being in just a, a literally a whole new world. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't even know if, if that kind of experience, um, I mean, it still exists, but the, there's so much globalization at this point that there's, Mm -hmm. you know, there's some similarities a lot when you travel, Mm -hmm. but at that point, um, It was so striking and and so we got there and um and then I was presenting to a group of teachers who were (laughs) definitely much older than me (laughs) you know I was 25 and I'm explaining to them like how to teach a class on water rights and and civic democracy and how to ask good questions and and that Teaching civics is about inviting, you know, critical thinking, and and you know, in retrospect, now that I'm older, <laughs> my God, they must have just been like, "Who, who is she?" <laughs> um, critical thinking, critical thinking. You now, and I, and I had one of we, I mean, literally every part of it. I feel like I could just go on and on, but mm-hmm. there was a singular moment for me in this experience that was so beautiful, where. Um, so at one point, the conference moved from sort of the middle of Krasnoyarsk to this health sanitarium kind of conference center a little bit further out near the Yenisei River that's very cold. <laughs> and uh, and the men and women, while they were there, were invited to go be in their own saunas, you know, where it was a classic, super hot sauna. And then you jump into a pool that is fed by the Yenisei River. So it's barely above freezing and i and i ended up in this sort of it's like just imagine an enormous tiled bathroom that has a sauna door you know next to it and at one point all the women had left except for these two young teachers as well who were just a couple years older than me and one of them was a music teacher and she sang russian Love songs in the bathroom, you know, like in this tiled environment. So the acoustics were amazing, and and so it was just the three of us with this like pool of Yenisei River water by my feet. I uh, as she sang these forlorn, beautiful wow. Russian love songs, you know. And so wow. I I have no idea what we're talking about anymore, but I have taken you to this moment that was just so like. <laughs> beautiful for me and and the um it was so amazing to have that kind of just people just uh, you know it's just when life is people are you you just end up in this moment with people who you don't know and it's beautiful yeah
0: I mean you said you don't know what we're talking about it's wonderful we you know we we asked you to take us to take us there to transport us and we gradually went from a in Talking in cinematic terms, from these big wide shots to this close up of this moment between you and these other teachers in this tiled tar- yeah. bathroom—lovely.
2: And the macro question is: How did you become
1: a filmmaker? Mm-hmm. How did oh, you? Yes. Know? Oh, and- I still haven't told you that part yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and this is connected. So, so my translator was a another woman who was my age. I and there was this very wild dynamic to the experience with my translator because she was not allowed to eat with us because there wasn't enough food and the general understanding amongst everyone at the time is that everyone basically had two jobs the one that they talked about and the one that they didn't or she described for me everyone having like a plot of land out in the forest where they could grow potatoes or something like that and uh one of the other teachers that was there She and I decided to take this young woman out for dinner um, because that was um, truly a mind-blowing experience for her and not a big deal for us. And uh, in the process of getting to know my translator, I learned that even though she couldn't, she could, she could barely afford to eat, she had managed to watch Titanic five times. Remember, this is before streaming. This yeah. was after Titanic had already been released in the by years. So it was like somehow available in Siberia. Um, and I was so struck because it was feeding into something I was already thinking for myself, which was, you know, I had already heard from some of my students that I... They felt like they were learning history more from movies. And, you know, uh-huh. that's always like this horrifying feeling because you know how movies completely <laughs> rewrite history that's, sometimes. Yeah. But I, that was such a concrete example to me of how storytelling is universal mm. and that Hollywood, for as much as I didn't necessarily fit the, the, idea of who might want to go to Hollywood. Um, and I'd have a lot of friends who would immediately say, Elizabeth, lots of different people go to Hollywood. I understood that to be, I, it was very important to me to participate in the storytelling because the stories were traveling everywhere and they were impacting people's lives in the, truly in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I, and, um, And I wanted to be a part of that. And one of the reasons I wanted to be a part of that was because I realized women and minorities were not a part of that, especially at that time. Mm. So it's been a it's it's been a long journey. (laughs) But I, you know, I was just I was so struck by how that was the way that I could help, um, help continue to expand other people's horizons you know if we go back to this idea that i really believe we can learn our whole lives mm-hmm. it also means that we need vehicles for learning because we don't all go to keep going to school yeah. and really felt like storytelling is telling stories films theater books these are all little spaces um private intimate spaces and that being an audience to something or reading something is still a form of you get to travel. Yeah, and yeah. I love to share, you know, I've been very fortunate in the way that I've been able to travel. Um, even when I haven't had a lot of resources, my world has stayed pretty big. And you know, that vantage point is something that's really important to me to share. And um yeah, I'm gonna again, I feel like I need a little direction. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but and so that got me to filmmaking.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, one One of our principles is there are a multiplicity of stories. And I love that story as an example of you being lifted out of, you know, your story of being a teacher in Hawaii. You were taken to the other side of the world, to this different place, and were shown the power of telling stories by somebody who lived in Siberia, who'd seen Titanic so many times. You know, you, it's like you kind mm-hmm. of, you got that proof of, yeah, this, this is the power of that vehicle because here's somebody who, as you say, lived in the middle of nowhere and yet she had access to something. And so part of your mission becomes, okay, then I can use this and I can tell some hidden stories. I can tell some different
0: stories. The thing I loved that you said was, um, this, and I really got this, I don't know that I have thought about it quite like this, that... Stories in whatever form they come, whether we're sitting in an auditorium with 10,000 people, uh, they create private, intimate spaces. That was what you said. It's like my relationship Mm. to the story. That's where the intimacy is. And I might be on my own in my room watching it on a laptop or I might be with lots of other people. And there's something, of course, about that communal live event that we all know about that we've missed perhaps over this last year. But that private, intimate space, I love that because that's our connection with the story isn't
1: it it is and i i really that is that is what i consider myself making and mm-hmm. filmmaking you know then became part of the journey and then it expanded out again uh with with both of you in terms of theater you know i i got to reconnect to live performance partly through my connection to both of you mm-hmm. um and it's so funny um to articulate it for myself even right now as we've Mm. talked about so and it's uh, yeah go ahead (laughs) no uh,
0: I mean again tributaries which one should we go down I mean what I'm interested in also is and we as I said earlier we were kind of given this little kaleidoscopic snapshot of of this family that you are part of. And Jane and I, of course, know a little bit about that because of some of your work. So my question, to introduce that to anybody else listening, is when did your own story then become part of your creative practice? How did that arise as something you wanted to work with?
1: So both of you are familiar with the Book of Changes, which is... (laughs) still not formally finished very personal documentary that has been its own journey I uh, mm-hmm. but before that I wrote a novel called the song of the space potato which is an experimental novel uh, that I self-published because I knew especially at the time like I I wrote this to um acknowledge the adventures I had with my mother on the road when I was a uh, For turning five years old. I, and um, we, my mother was dating a professional clown at the time and we
0: traveled.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We traveled from the Washington DC area down to Key West, Florida in time for Christmas. And I, I turned five on the road. I, and actually for my fifth birthday, I was a clown in a mall working as a clown, uh, in Tennessee.
0: Brilliant. That is an image. I need to hang on. I need to (laughs) zoom in on that a little bit. Tell us what you were wearing, Elizabeth.
1: Oh my gosh. I was wearing, I, this very colorful striped full piece, you know, see, and I, I believe I had a hat to go with it and they, they put makeup on and, you know, the funny part of it is my mom truly thought I would love this because I got to dress up as a clown and it was it was a great outfit. Uh, <laughs> but when I had to hand out lollipops to other people on my birthday, it got a little bit dicier. So I got wow. upset at the end. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I also, that was my fifth birthday. Um, so what I've just, the, my path to working on autobiographical work, mm. even in the context of fictionalizing it, which mm. I did in Space Potato. Oh, and, and what you need to know is that the van that we traveled in was called the Space Potato. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Right. <laughs> and um, and so then the second piece, and this is actually the origin story that, you know, as we talked about before in prepping for this. Mm. So the reason why it's called The Song of the Space Potato is... Um, in the fictionalization of that story, I had my mom dating uh, a African-American trumpet player instead of a clown. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And well, that's not true. She does date the clown, but she's in love with this African-American trumpet player who, who, and that is because when I was in third grade, so I was eight years old, Uh, my mom got a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts uh, for a performance piece called Crayons and Horns. And what she was doing was uh, painting live on stage as jazz musicians performed. Mm -hmm. And uh, she painted with glow-in-the-dark paint so the light was low and... And those jazz musicians, the two leads in that were a man named Bayard Lancaster and Yusuf Fancy. And Bayard was a respected jazz uh, musician in Philadelphia, and Yusuf still is still alive, and he lives in Brussels now. And Yusuf actually originally he started out playing for James Brown, like he you uh-huh. know these were these were amazing musicians I was getting to sit around at dinner with. and at the time, they taught me how to perform. And they, or they gave me some tips. And, and so one night while they were over at the house for dinner, there was, it was this candlelit dinner and they asked me to sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow for them. And I sang Somewhere Over the Rainbow and they were like, just focus on the candlelight so that, you know, you're not focused on us. And this moment for me is my origin moment. I am so clear on it, but I only understood it in context, in the last few years, and and the thing to note is that I called that book "The Song and the Space Potato," and I wrote that book as if it were a jazz song. So there are empty pages to to indicate rests in the music, um and I did my best. I did. I, I'm sure I didn't succeed, but I had this idea of like meter and sixteen verse, verse eight for you know, like how was I doing that? That was all in my head as I wrote that book, and you know, these stories, I mean, they go on and on and on. I had a very rich childhood and um, writing it was my way of taking all of these extraordinary people who I grew up around, putting them into a story and then letting go so that I wasn't thinking about, oh my gosh, you know, that crazy moment when I was in Key West, when I was five years old, where this man with lizards, you know, with iguanas was like this amazing tree above me, like, you know, like, and, and did that really happen? And, you know, like, and I, and the other thing that I did is Yusef and my mom, you know, I don't think I'm revealing anything to anyone, but they, you know, they had a relationship for a while and he was a part of my life for a bit. And so, as we travel south, I just thought it would be more interesting if we were um, half black instead of half Chinese in the context of that particular journey. So, mm. I, I, you know, it, it, um, and I made my mother a singer instead of a painter, mm. and it became about song. and And what I've understood, even in the making of Book of Changes, and as I think about anything else I've been working on, my approach to writing is is very much about music, and even my understanding of editing is very much about music. And I would say the thing that you guys haven't really experienced with me and that almost nobody has because I kind of let go of it when I was uh, coming out of high school is that music rhythm is very inherent to my understanding of how to tell a story. I, it is what I, what I look to as a way to understand structure. Right. It's how, and, you know, if we think about, you know, I focus in on this woman singing me songs in Russia, it's like I I have this relationship to music that's actually expressed in different ways than being a live musician um, that has come out in my writing and in my filmmaking. and And so Space Potato, Song of the Space Potato was my realization that um, I've been working on these autobiographical pieces because I've had so much to process <laughs> that, that doing that my work was also a form of therapy, mm-hmm. you know, and that you create a relationship to the story that's separate from yourself mm-hmm. and you're able to look at it in a separate way and also to let go of it. And so it's so funny to me because um Like, I can't even tell you what's in the song of the space potato right now. Like I'd have to reread it myself, even though it's my whole, you know, it's my, it's my childhood through age eight, basically. Um, and, uh, and I love that about what that has become for me. It's, um, it's, it's getting to sing a song that then puts a story, you know, it, it, it leaves you and gets to be its own thing. And that's so Mm. powerful. Mm. Even if if five people have read it or seen it, like it's the process of it is powerful, the, you know, and whoever does see it then becomes part of a conversation with me, Um, so. Mm. Including yourself
2: in a way, because it's only when we tell our stories Get to listen to our own stories as well, so we kind of get to hear, yeah, all the layers in this, you know, like like a piece of jazz. Because you know, as you say, your childhood was so rich, so many stories in there, that there is that need to tell the story to begin to understand the story. Because it's only then that you can kind of see, oh yeah, and there's that, and then there's that, and that can join up with that, and it can be, you know, something completely different than you thought. There's there's many other possibilities.
1: Yeah, it's, and and again, even this conversation is that process for me, you know, it's, yeah. I'm fascinated to know that this is where we've gone with this. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, this conversation is like a piece of jazz, because it's, you know, it's improvised, we didn't have a framework for the questions only like really roughly like we're going to get you to introduce yourselves and then we're just following wherever it goes. So wherever it goes is
0: wherever it goes. So I'm gonna come back to one of the motifs of this piece of jazz, <laughs> which is which is family and knowing a bit of about um the journey of the Book of Changes, having seen some iterations of it and really wonderfully been immersed into that. I have and and this is this is maybe quite a kind of crude understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I thought I observed as you were working on it from afar was that you were surprised to realize that you had to become the center of that story when that wasn't your initial you know, intention. Is that, is that right?
1: That's correct. And that's, I, uh, that's a great talking point.
0: Tell us a bit about her, that journey.
1: Yeah. It's um. so there's a moment in this documentary that no one is seeing <laughs> where, where I'm talking to uh a very well known astrologer a woman named Caroline Casey uh, who she and she really understands divination as a form of storytelling and as I'm talking to her there's this really subtle thing that happens where she asks me about the story and we're talking about my father I and she With was that very
0: Father, right? Well, that an original intention was to make a film centered on your father, is that right? Yes,
1: thank you, thank you. And I, uh, and there's a subtle shift in language where I realize in the middle of that interview that I'm talking about myself, my mm. story. And I'm guessing that one of the reasons why I have found it difficult to find a final version of that. Film, not just because of these crazy things that have happened in the meantime mm, <laughs> of, mm. of like material issues and challenges, is that I was really, really, really unwilling to fully acknowledge that I was talking about my own journey. And one of the reasons at the beginning of that was because I was technically making this film in the context of a nonprofit uh, around Taoism. Mm. And, uh, and I wanted to be really mindful of making sure it didn't look like I was making a film about me for for a nonprofit. Mm. And And the reason why it did turn to me from a very logical standpoint is that um, this documentary is called The Book of Changes. The Book of Changes being the loose English translation of the I Ching, which is this ancient Chinese oracle and book of wisdom that my father had translated while he was alive. And um, and the sort of this common understanding of, of what happens when you're looking at the I Ching is that you're just seeing a reflection back of yourself. And so what I started to understand very quickly in that process was though I could make a documentary that was, you know, like this is the I Ching, it was written in this date and, you know, and and then this happened and then this person translated it. That actually, if I was talking about the I Ching and the reading of it, I was really talking about my experience of having my own life reflected back at me. And there's a very, even to this day, my father died uh, 18 years ago and um, he still is such a strong presence with so many people and so there's also a lot of expectation that it would be about him you know and and I didn't I didn't have any reason to not um, go with that but I personally also have a very very specific uh, relationship to my father because of you know the way our our living circumstances worked out and and so I understood that if I made it about me, I also had to reveal some things about my father that wouldn't look attractive. Mm. And I, and that is a very complex thing to agree to with oneself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, because I'm not someone who is, I I didn't need to make a film to make my father look bad. You know, like I wasn't setting out on this journey to do that. I, and if anything, I really wanted to celebrate the parts of his life that had had a very big impact on people in terms of, you know, he had helped bring acupuncture to the United States. He, he really had focused on introducing Chinese concepts of healing into Western medicine um, and, you know, helped he was living in DC. Like he was treating a lot of people you'd be surprised to know he was treating and uh, was helping to write the initial laws around acupuncture and, and complementary medicine and all that stuff. And, wow. and so I, it's a complex thing to take someone who's done quite a lot of amazing things. And then on a very personal note, acknowledge some really bad choices that he made. <laughs> you know, if, if I'm going to be the, in the, very specifically in the context of my relationship to him. And, you know, and that even happens while I'm in conversation with Caroline Casey, where she asks questions that if I answer honestly, you know, don't have the answer that she was probably expecting. And, um, and to her credit, one of the things that I loved about that interview with Caroline Casey was that, you know, she was like, if you don't answer honestly, you're also infantilizing the person who you pro- think you're protecting. Like, people have to, it's important if you're going to respect that there are multiple realities all coexisting at the same time, which is one of her important points to me, then then you need to acknowledge those multiple realities um, and learn how to coexist with them. And, you know, and what's interesting for me personally is that now over time as life progresses and things happen, you know, and I... And lots of people pointed out to me when I started, if you're making something called the book of changes, like uh-huh. you know, it's always going to change Elizabeth. Uh-huh. But but I'm reaching a point now where I'm comfortable with a film being about me. It will still very much acknowledge my father's work because he translated the I Ching. That's mm-hmm. my entry point into it. But also if we go back to the beginning of this conversation and my Chinese you know the the confusion around the nature of my Chinese name, the idea that I was you know dressed up as a Chinese girl for Halloween um, and looking around at what the relevant conversations are right now about identity mm. I think I've I've come to a place where the book of changes that I want to finish in is me looking at what it means to have a mixed heritage and mm. The Chinese side in particular that I didn't the, or that I came too late because it wasn't, you know, I was initially raised by the English, <laughs> so to speak, you know, and and uh, in Virginia. and um, And really taking a second to acknowledge and explore the impact of my Chinese heritage, but also the challenge of what it means to um be half Chinese mm-hmm. and Asian American today. Um mm-hmm. you know, especially now it's funny, people won't see, but I have blonde hair right now uh, and have mm-hmm. now for a couple of years. And that has completely changed my experience of the world because people see more the white side of me than wow. the Chinese side of me. There are uh, like my ability to <laughs> be perceived as uh, my ability. <laughs> I don't even know what that phrase means. The like more often than not, if I walk into a room, people just assume I'm white and they just don't, they have to look a little bit more closely maybe, or they just don't even notice, wow. you know, I've, I've, um, and, and so I've had this fascinating thing happen by going blonde, which I thought would look way fake and like, you know, obvious instead I've been treated like a white person. Hmm. And in, if anything I've been in this uncomfortable position periodically where I've had to assert that I'm actually a person of color. <laughs> and, wow. and that looks ridiculous, <laughs> you know, like you, that's. And so so I can say you are treated differently. Wow. It's a it's a. Yeah. I, I remember I was on a layover in Dallas, I uh, having, you know, like nachos at a bar while I was waiting for my next flight and this couple um this they had a you know southern accent they were both white and they just started talking to me and then they I talked about being a filmmaker and you know that they probably wouldn't have seen anything I had made but they asked what my last name was and I said ing Wong and they honestly <laughs> practically fell out of their seats like I was like they had no Like understanding that they were talking to an Asian person in their head, because that's what I instantly became like it was, you know, it uh, it was a shift. And and so the Book of Changes is now informed by experiences I've had in the last few years that have challenged me to really look at what, you know, my evolving understanding of my identity and cultural heritage is um, and, an ethnic, you know, like it's, there's just so many different layers in, in it at this point. So, uh, yeah.
2: Well, those are just like a, a breath. I
1: know. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> because that is just an, uh, an amazing example of, of there being a multiplicity of stories because they are, they're alive in you. Those different, truths those different experiences you know multiple realities as yeah. you're saying
0: and for you to have had the experience mm-hmm. of shapeshifting, for want of a better term being in one place and being in another and being able to say it's different I felt it is is well I mean I was gonna say a privilege because it's I mean in a way it is but it's a hard privilege it's a hard privilege to um to experience I would say to have stepped on both sides of that line,
2: and also I think telling telling your story is telling your father's story because he, you're made of him in yes. part, you know. So it's the you know it's the same story to an
0: extent. I feel I have to just qualify. You were going to respond when I said privilege, and I just have to qualify. I guess what I mean is there's something extraordinary about it that mm-hmm. not everybody gets to to um understand in a way that you have i guess that's what i've meant
1: yeah no absolutely and it is a um yeah it's a it's a a strange perspective to have mm. gained uh without meaning to at all you know mm. and it and it is funny because i went blonde actually very much to mark a significant moment of loss in my life and um and so for me I went blonde to embrace it's it is literally a daily reminder in the mirror to embrace change Mm -hmm. and and it's funny because there's a whole other level of the way that society judges you when you go blonde as a woman (sighs) right and um and so that's also my experience of doing it and you know and and so I'm people just make assumptions about what your intentions are and that's fascinating you know I'm not I, I'm still going to stay blonde right now. You know, that's, <laughs> that, that'll be what that'll be. But it's, uh, it's just been so interesting and it's so interesting for me to have this conversation with you and, and think about like dressing up at Halloween and now I'm blonde and, you know, being treated like a white person and <laughs> just being like, yeah, it's been pretty wild.
0: <laughs> and a white blonde woman, which if now I did that layer, which yeah. Yeah, whole yep. other thing. Yep. It's fascinating. I'm really interested, having seen, as I've said, an iteration of Book of Changes to to see where it goes next Um, because, you know, I I guess I probably saw it last maybe four years ago or something like that, a version of it, and quite a lot's happened. You know, you've you've kind of referenced the world that we live in now and whether, you know, whether you'll shoot new footage or how you'll re-edit it or you know, re-voice it or whatever, retell it as a story I'm really interested to know.
1: Thank you. Yeah, and and I think now what's happened too, which is different than a few years ago, is I now have a very solid background in editing. And mm. this very personal story is now more easily in my hands to finish telling. And, um, mm. and my awareness of... My purpose in my voice and rhythm and song and all that is is now so much more obvious to me and so I do feel like it's time for me to um, go back in and take what I've learned in the meantime and help clarify what I want to say mm. uh, you know I mean it's it's remarkable actually <laughs> personally I feel very empowered <laughs>
0: What a great, what a great space to be in. Mm. I'm, I'm interested in editing. So I just Mm. want to pause on that for a moment. And I'm just, I'm just looking at time. And I think we've got maybe a a few more minutes, but just thinking in terms of storytelling, um, we've got a film actor friend who um, does his thing on set and he does it in some quite big films. Um, I guess, Sometimes he might watch, I have a sense that he might not, he might often not watch the final film because he kind of says, it's not my medium. It's the director and the editor and they will do what they want to do. They'll mm. take whatever take works for them or where the sound was best or whatever. They will tell the story in the way they want to tell. And all I can do is control my little bit of it. And so I'm interested in, I don't know what the question is, but around mm. editing, because when Jane and I work with people in their stories, um, In terms of editing, what do we do? We talk about story structure, because we get people to excavate stories, and we give them a way of thinking about structure. And very simply, the way we talk about structure is to know your first line of a story. Basically, know how you're going to start and why you're going to start like that, so that you hook somebody's attention to want to go on the journey with you, basically. And know your last line, so you always have in your sights where you're going. So there you have your kind of container and then know your turning points. Um, and in a short story, that might be one, but in a film, there'll be multiple turning points. And there's the kind of architecture of your story. And Barry, that's a very simple way we talk about structure. And then we get people to focus on what they will leave out as much as what they'll put in. that that is, you know, it's, it's not the lesser cousin to what you're going to put in is as important. Mm. And how you can, as we know, films you know, jump us from one space to another. And that might be backwards in time or forwards in time, but we will join the dots. So I guess in terms of our work, that's about it. But I'm interested in how you're, you know, you're saying I feel very fully grounded as an editor now. And what what you can tell us about um, the space that editing has in in shaping and telling stories, what you can add to it as a filmmaker.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think it is by far the least understood part of filmmaking. Mm. Uh, And I think partially because there are lots of editing jobs these days where uh, it is much more about just, there's a formula for the way you do it. And as long as you've learned that formula uh, and you're working with the producers and the directors who, and often, especially in commercials, the directors stop being a part of the conversation in editorial. Like Uh it's... You know, so it's They've gone. um yeah, and yeah. You know, I, I was I was editing some branded content a couple of years ago uh with a producer who works only in commercials and I actually almost got into a very real fight with him because I had just finished editing a film and he just didn't think that editors you know he was he was like all you do is you know like put in what yeah. we need it doesn't yeah. matter, Elizabeth, it'll still be fine. Um, and over time I got him to acknowledge that maybe in the context of performance that might be different. Um, so, and I also want to differentiate that there, there are two different layers of editing, um, especially from a storytelling standpoint. One where the director is editing and one where the director is working with an editor because there's the craft and art of editing. And then there is the role of the editor with a director, um, which I think is almost never talked about. And um, the thing that I have learned, whether it's been on a film or in branded content where you're delivering to very, very specific marketing guidelines mm-hmm. um, or requirements and taste levels, um, you're a safe space to talk about things that didn't work. Mm-hmm. and you're a safe space at the end of a very long sometimes very painful journey for the director mm-hmm. in particular mm-hmm. i and um you're the person who maybe needs to suggest things that no one else is willing to suggest mm-hmm. i and so there's that part of editing which almost never gets talked about i uh, and um and then there's the the art of editing um know and everyone gets so focused on how fast you can move the software around and everything but it's really just about how you're making choices and i and and rhythm you know and and if you the way that you know the edit is working for people is you're finding the rhythm that they inherently have for themselves so i just had this funny experience where i worked on one edit where they needed me to just keep editing faster and faster and then another where directly afterwards, where they needed me to keep going slower and slower. And um, I oh. and it's, you know, it's it's then that's personal taste. It's also the nature of what the project is. and and then in the context of longer storytelling, um, f- you know, it, it's how do you pace visual intake with sound intake? with information intake which is the language being said and performance and you know if do you want to if you cut to hands there you know is that because the hands are helping tell a story or is that because you're covering the fact that you actually need to use different dialogue Mm -hmm. um and in which case you're doing a different kind of art form (laughs) and covering (laughs) mistake so I i you know i love editing as like the ultimate puzzle where you're mixing picture you know light with sound and rhythm the this inherent rhythm um and uh, you know it's it's a tedious process a lot of it um and i and i don't think it's nearly has enough uh respect given to it mm. like Truly, it's sitting in a room and talking through story with someone uh, or being your own editor as the director and um, finding the rhythms you want to put into the storytelling. You know, it's a it's a long, uh, sometimes grueling process, hmm. but the payoff is extraordinary. I mean, when you start to see the edit actually be the edit you need it to be, uh, it is a magic thing. <laughs> it's so oh, amazing. Wow. So.
2: yeah and, and I love how when you talk about you know editing now and your ability to be the editor on the book of changes what you said was and I need to think about what is it that I want to say you know so it's like who's listening and how are they listening and how can I edit this so that the thing that I'm needing to express through this film lands for them
1: yeah um, and it, it is a form of writing to me you know yeah.
2: it's
0: uh,
1: um, yeah I don't know if you could hear
0: Elizabeth
2: As you were describing that Could you hear a horn playing? No Because I've our a
0: Soundtrack going on here Our
2: next door neighbour Plays the trumpets And he's just started You know Practising next door So we have a horn player Which I just love Considering you know Where Where, where we started And sound And music And Perfect Yeah
0: Perfect <laughs> So wonderful!
1: Yeah, thank you, for,
0: thank you for taking us to those those places. And there's so many more. There's so many questions. There's so many other things that I'd love to to drop in and and explore with you. Maybe another time. Maybe
1: another time. Yeah, of course, you guys. I <laughs> I, I love this. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much, yeah, Elizabeth. I you. knew, you know, pleasure. I've known you for about 12 or 13 years now, but I knew I was going to learn some things and be taken to <laughs> some places that I'd never been. And the five-year-old in the stripy clown outfit, not being so happy about giving the lollies out. <laughs> I'm going to hold on to that image of you. I love it.
2: Yeah. Storytelling is time travel. Yeah. Yes,
1: so thank you. Absolutely. Thank I you for it. taking us there. My pleasure, you guys. It's so lovely to see you and talk to you. And thank you again. It's been great.
2: Thank you.